Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayad. It's the year 1789. In France, the price of bread has skyrocketed to most of what a worker earns in a day. The absolute authority of the king, once unquestionable, is fraying more every day. On the 14th of July, commoners storm the Bastille, igniting a revolution that will upend much more than the political order. In 1789, it seemed almost everything was up for debate. Systems of measurement, gender roles, architecture, the true meaning of freedom and human rights which makes 1789 a quintessential example of what Salman Rushdie calls a hinge moment in history. Moments when all must be remade, rethought, reimagined, and rewritten. Today on Ideas, the second installment in our series, The Shock of the New, exploring how change happens. Our panelists are William Nelson, Professor of Historical and Cultural Studies at the University of Toronto, Karen Vellahora, Professor of English at York University, and Daryl D., Professor of History at Wilfrid Laurier University. This is the year 1789, more than one revolution. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for being here today. It's really wonderful to see so many people interested in history and what it means, uh, especially today. Uh, Our panel today, 1789, I thought perhaps we could start with just a, a little picture that we can paint for the audience. When you think about that year, 1789, what's most important for you about that year? And is there a picture or a story that kind of encapsulates the moment for you? Daryl. Well, we all have images of the French Revolution, don't we? The storming of the Bastille, perhaps the tennis court oath. But 1789 was not just the year of the French Revolution. I would argue that it's also the climax of an entire age of reform and revolution. The first modern constitution was written on the island of Corsica in 1755. Its author, Pasquale Paoli, restored the natural rights of his people so that they could rule themselves. And then states and societies much more powerful and larger than Corsica in in subsequent years all embarked on programs of reform. So in Austria, 
the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II um, evicted the Catholic Church from its authority over education, justice, and its great influence over politics. In Portugal, the Marques de Pombal liberalized the economy, broke the power of the Portuguese Inquisition, and also liberalized race relations in Brazil. And in Russia, the Empress Catherine issued a great nakaz, an instruction, calling for the modernization of the ancient laws of Muscovy. And as many of you know, in 1776, 13 American colonies declared their independence. So why is the period after 1750 such an incredibly important turning point, of which 1789 is the hinge year? I would say there are two reasons. First of all, was the spread of the intellectual movement called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment challenged tradition and custom and established reason and natural law as the arbiters in every area of human life. And the second and perhaps less obvious reason was the intensification of warfare and international competition after 1750. After 1750, wars became more prolonged, they became bloodier, and their consequences more significant. States had to reform themselves, had to create stronger governments, and they turned to Enlightenment ideas in order to achieve that, with the exception of France. Thank you, Daryl. That's great. Lots to chew on there as well. So, William? I think one of the interesting things, particularly to relate to these kind of previous comments, to think about the fact that there were many reforms, there were revolutions before 1789, before the French Revolution, but what still became quite distinctive and, um, in my mind, truly radical about the French Revolution is that there is the creation of the sense that everything, everything, can be recreated, could be made anew, could be made different. That this kind of opens up uh, people's imagination and, and the sense that they could have a stake in the creation of a future, of a different future. Uh, so in the French Revolution, we get totally wild plans about restructuring things like language, uh, the relationships between men and women, possibilities for uh, kind of recreating things that seem quite mundane, maybe like the metric system, uh, that were actually quite radical plans for changing the very structures of existence. Also, within that opening up of possibility, um, so oftentimes the revolutionaries were kind of getting out in front of themselves, statements of principle that they then had to work out how precisely <laughs> they would realize, uh, how they would get people to go along with them, what to do about the consequences of declaring uh, something like the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen. Who would it apply to? It seemed universal. Would it really apply to everybody? Would it be a truly universal declaration? Did it apply to people who had traditionally had kind of limitations on their freedoms, have kind of certain restrictions on their lives? Jewish people, Protestants, enslaved people that still existed in great numbers in the colonies. And of course, probably the, the largest population that was in question in that specific case of the, the declaration of women. Would it apply to women? Was man a truly expansive stand-in for human beings? Or was that men, male, French citizens? Yeah. So the moment to me that's most important or most telling is a much quieter revolution in 1789. A freed black slave Olauda Equiano publishes his memoir, The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Gustavus Vasa, that was his slave name, The African. That in 1789 he published that memoir or autobiography, it was an instant bestseller. 
50,000 copies were sold in a few months. He went on a book tour. (laughs) (laughs) And that is sort of a moment of a much quieter and maybe more profound revolution. Wonderful. These are all good teasers to uh, whet the appetite. You all speak, of course, uh, importantly of the fact that 1789 does not just exist in a vacuum, that there was a long period that led to those events. And so I'd like to begin there in the lead up to 1789. And what was going on in other countries and other places in the world that allowed all of this to flourish? I think William's already mentioned the new focus on everyday life, the metric system. One of the laws was to allow for divorce in the, the French revolutionary government decided to let divorces happen. They'd been almost impossible in England too. And I find this focus on this shift of focus to daily life, the lives of ordinary people in England with newspapers, printing presses, schools, dissenting academies, increasingly secular culture, Mm. focus on commerce, of course, Adam Smith, the wealth of nations, but also Adam Smith also wrote the theory of moral sentiments. And what you see in England across the entire 18th century is this fascinating shift to the interest and importance of day-to-day life, chronicled in the newspaper, but also in small moral transactions between characters in novels. We're all novel readers now. You can sort of take it for granted. Or moviegoers, theatergoers in the 18th century for the first time started actually listening to what was going on on stage. (laughs) They used to just chatter away like they were at a party and there were actors there too. And in the 18th century, people actually started to listen, to attend Mm -hmm. to what other people are saying. And the reading of novels is this one-on-one, inward, private experience. And there's been some really interesting work on the history of the mind and the history of the development of moral character. And it links it directly to the development of the novel as a technology that cultivates our capacity for imaginative engagement, identification, and empathy with other people. And so for the first time in England, you have a wide number of people, the middle class for the most part, but it was growing across the century, reading novels about servant girls, that's Richardson's Pamela, became an extremely popular novel in France as well. It was a novel where the serving girl, Pamela, had more moral character than her master, who's a version of Mr. B from Sex in the City, Mr. Big. Um, so for me, the lead up to this revolutionary decade or the 1790s in England or a, a, a time of real change and turmoil, the Romantic movement, it's this focus on individual people. And I mean... You only learn to focus on yourself through focusing on others. It's mm-hmm. this reciprocal movement. And I think that allows for a new kind of culture of engagement and the development of a new sense of community with others who are not necessarily just like yourself. Karen, I just want, let me stay with you for a minute because you bring a, up a very important point. Just how all of this change that you've just talked about, you know, how... Uh, what the relationship is between all this change and how the changes that we're seeing in the way of thinking in the political realm? Well, it's a time of writing. So by the end of the century, you have parliamentary debates were printed up in pamphlets and distributed as the day's news. I find that fascinating. Just that one, that one little, wow, everyone's reading the parliament. Hardly anyone had the vote. 
1% had the vote. 1% had all the power in England, as in France, across this entire period. But the fact that people were reading and writing outside of Parliament, they were the world out of doors, that's how they were for the mob, but also the world <laughs> out of doors, could put pressure on politicians. So, for example, with the, the Friends of the Abolition, a movement led by Quakers and other dissenters, but also women and freed slaves who had come to England for refuge. England was one of the places where a freed slave could actually be sure of some bodily autonomy. And William, just geopolitically, what was happening in the world that allowed, you know, as a whole, and, and I know some of your work centers around putting the French Revolution into an international context. Yeah, maybe one of the, the most important big uh, kind of larger background transformations, the Seven Years' War, so back to the end of the 1750s, into the 1760s, this major imperial battle. France and England vying for as much control of the world as was possible. And there's a real effort to, to kind of gain control, to defeat the, the British and assert kind of control of, of India as well. And this is one of the, the ways that this kind of conflict could be thought of as one of the first kind of, if not exactly a world war in the sense that we have in the, the 20th century, certainly a conflict that touches all parts of the world and, and is related to, uh, to kind of many uh, countries. In the, and <clears throat> one of the kind of effects of the, the revolution as well is that this, you know, the kind of relationship between France and England and India and, uh, and the Ottoman Empire, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And the intensification uh, of, of uh, kind of attempts to control these, uh, these parts of the world and reassert some kind of imperial colonial control only, only kind of uh, intensifies with the, uh, with the revolution itself. Daryl, you want to add something? Um, well, I think I think we should also add the Caribbean into mm. into our global picture, right? Yeah. Because um, the Caribbean in this period is one of the wealthiest places on earth, particularly the French colony of Saint Domingue, modern day Haiti. Haiti, if I could use the modern word, um, the modern name for the country, produced half of the sugar and coffee in the world. That sugar and coffee was produced by five hundred thousand slaves uh, brought in from Africa. It has a thriving slave trade. 30 to 50,000 Africans are brought in every year. The high point was reached in 1790 when 50,000 slaves were brought in. So it's a wealthy, the Caribbean is a wealthy place and a constant place for imperial rivalry between Britain and France. Um, in 1763, some of you may know this, but at the Treaty of Paris, the French chose to keep its Caribbean islands instead of Canada, mm. right? <laughs> Vol How things would be different right now. Uh, many of you might know what Voltaire called Canada, right? Quelques arpents de neige, a few acres of snow. <laughs> so you're not going to keep a few acres of snow over, over, over Saint-Domingue. Mm. And Saint-Domingue is a great part of the story of 1789 to mm. and after. What was the ratio of uh, slaves to plantation owners? There were 30,000 plantation owners and 30,000 free colored people. There was a enslaved population of half a million compared to a free population of 60,000. Yeah, wow. so, which made it like a yeah. ready to explode. Yeah. <laughs> So let's get to that year, 1789 proper. And Daryl, we'll stay with you. Just okay. if you could sketch for us just what the sparks were 
that ignited it finally in France, the revolution, and took us from kind of gradual change to radical upheaval. Okay. No one expected a revolution, 1788, 1789. Louis XVI's great minister, Brienne, his last great minister, was desperately trying to solve the, the issue of the king going bankrupt. Um, France's, the, the fall of the absolute monarchy is like Ernest Hemingway's description of bankruptcy, right? It's gradual and then sudden, happens in two ways. It's gradual up to 1788, and, and Minister Brienne is frantically trying to find money. And he thinks he's got money for 1788 into 1789. He thinks he can get the debt issue solved in 1794. 1788, the, in July, great hailstorm sweeps over France, wrecks the harvest, in an agricultural society like France, once the harvest is wrecked, no one has any money. 80% of French people are peasants. So the government suddenly is without money. It is unable to pay its bankers. It's unable to collect future taxes. And so Louis XVI has no choice but to give up absolute authority and call an estates general, an assembly of his subjects, that no French king has called since 1614. And that begins the revolution because it's now at this moment that the members of the Estates General who are all imbibed the ideas of the Enlightenment say, ah, now let's put this into practice. And so the king is forced to share power with his subjects and his subjects say, things have got to change and we think we know how we're going to do that. And we know, of course, you know, from reading accounts of the history, that it was about so much more than just upending a political order. It was also about, as you correctly pointed out in the lead-up period, about reimagining almost every aspect of life. So, Karen, I wondered, what, where do you think that project of transformation was most successful? Huh, that's an interesting question. Because the, the declarations, the declaration of the rights of man and the citizen like the American Declaration earlier, well, you can declare a lot of things, as William was pointing out. Uh, you can declare a lot of equality, universality, freedom, brotherhood, liberty. You can declare it all you want. I always think of Edmund Burke. He was a great conservative politician in England. He was a member of Parliament, and he was really well known for great speeches. And, and he wrote them out at length, so we have 100-page speeches and he wrote the Reflections on the Revolution in France. It was published in 1790, so really early, before the terror, mm. uh, before even the king had been beheaded. Uh, Burke published the Reflections, at, at, which led to a whole uh, tempest of pamphlets and essays. Wollstonecraft, Thomas Paine's Rights of Man was written in response. Wollstonecraft's Rights of Woman and Rights of Men was written in response as well. This is very early on in the revolution, and Burke spends the first hundred pages talking about the revolution in England and reflecting on revolution in general. And the, the great line from that work is these few blurred pieces of paper, meaning the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, these few blurred pieces of parchment, he says, those are not rights. Rights are something that grow up over the long term. And I, I suppose it's that how do rights actually manifest themselves as living, recognized realities between people? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting question we might consider. 
William, yeah. you pick up from that point. Yeah, and I think we could we could say something a little bit more about rights. One of the things that the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen uh, stated straight off the bat was that equality is absolutely central. And I think that's one of the elements of the revolution as a whole that is most consequential. Not that all of a sudden everyone was equal and uh, a kind of true equality reigned, but the very principle that, as it was stated, there would be a whole society, a nation built on the very idea of equality between people, in theory, to be realized in so many dimensions of life. Uh, I think was an incredibly powerful statement. Uh, it was also one that was so hard to actually realize mm -hmm. and to make real. And it didn't, uh, of course, lead in one single direction towards uh, getting better and, um, and kind of more and more of an equal society. There were kind of backsliding mm -hmm. as well. But I think the creation of the principle as a foundation of society and struggling with it as a real kind of practical challenge is one of the, the most important kind of... I want to expand more on mm. what all of this meant and how that all, you know, kind of extends into today's context. But before mm -hmm. that, I, I want to talk about what happens when things went wrong mm. first. So the French Revolution is still today invoked as, as a cautionary tale. So I'm wondering, Daryl, how, how the reign of terror affected how people at the time thought about the risks of democracy and, you know, trying to radically change the world. The reign of terror comes about as a result of the Republic under great pressure. It's at war with virtually all of Europe. Louis XVI has taken the steps to the guillotine and many revolutionaries celebrated this moment as the point of no return. We cannot go back to what they were already reflexively calling the ancien regime, the former regime, right? Mm -hmm. But the killing of the king was was excoriated in the rest of Europe, and it was also very unpopular in many parts of France. Mm -hmm. France was in a civil war at, at this moment, and at the same time, the Republic is trying to, to figure out, as, as Williams already hinted, what equality meant, what liberty meant, what fraternity meant, all those, those words that emblazon public buildings in France today, liberté, égalité, fraternité. And it's the debates, it's the ferocious debates over the principles of the revolution, how to actually enshrine the revolution that, that leads to the terror because the revolutionaries are arguing amongst themselves mm -hmm. and they're also trying to demonstrate that they speak for the people, right? Once you've enshrined sovereignty for the people, who speaks for that sovereignty? And frankly, it's never really solved. Just, just so we can all kind of be on the same page, can we sketch out what the new understanding of freedom and human rights emerged from 1789? What did that, what exactly... Anyone? I, I think people understood that most people didn't have human rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Women did not get full political rights until the 20th century. So I think all those declarations, and of, of course there was the slave trade going on in the background. One of the things I wanted to say too is those few blurred pieces of parchment, you know, these incredibly idealistic movements were all backgrounded um, and I think dwarfed by the slave trade, the expansion of empire, France and England, India, the West Indies, the American colonies. All of that seems, when you look back, a lot larger 
than the storming of the Bastille mm-hmm. in one country, you know, one moment. William? Yeah, I, one other thing I, I think is is very interesting and important to think about with the, the Declaration of Rights. It's an incredibly important document and an incredibly important part of this history, but also we maybe shouldn't, I shouldn't, don't want to overemphasize the role that it played in motivating people. One of the really interesting kind of examples to be thinking about, so in what was France's most valuable colony, Saint-Domingue, where there was this enormous enslaved population that uh, was producing vast wealth for France. There was a revolution, and eventually it becomes the Haitian Revolution, and there's the Declaration of Haitian Republic, a successful slave revolution. People who took their own freedom, took their sovereignty themselves, declared themselves a nation in 1804, They didn't need the Declaration of Rights of Citizen, Man and Citizen in France to want to end slavery and take their own lives into their own hands, form a new nation. I just want to jump in quickly that Haitian Revolution started in 1791. Mm -hmm. France abolished slavery in 1794. It declared slavery abolished. But Napoleon rushed to Haiti in or what would become Haiti, in 1802, I think. Mm. So it was Napoleon who went back to get his slave trade back, to get his slaves back, his slave trade, his West Indies. So when you're reading these histories, it's really about human rights and the Declaration. Uh, It's easy to miss the money. Where's the money? That's something I don't want us to overlook. It's always about the money. Yeah. <laughs> Follow the money. But but to this point, I mean, what we're talking about here is that there had been actually several attempted revolutions in Haiti, uh, uh, Daryl. And, and just I'm curious if you could talk about the relationship between the Haitian and the French revolutions just in a bit more detail. Well, as, as William pointed out, the, the Haitian revolution, it doesn't need the French revolution necessarily. The Haitian revolution begins with a great slave revolt of August 1791. The slaves on Haiti, on Saint-Domingue, today Haiti, it's very difficult to know what they knew about events in France. Mm. It's unclear if they knew French. Many of them, including many of the leaders of, of the slave revolt, were recently come from West Africa. So not really acculturated into even the plantation culture and plantation societies of Saint-Domingue. So that revolution begins as a a revolt of the slaves. Now, where I think the connection is, is that it gave the slaves opportunity. Before August 1791, the colony is in ferment because of the fall of the absolute monarchy. Um, And there is a pre-revolt by Mm -hmm. a free-colored person named Auger, and we know that Auger was in Paris and probably became aware of the French of the events of the French Revolution, perhaps even some of the writings. He returned to Saint-Domingue, began a revolution. That revolution was crushed, and Auger was tortured to death by the plantation owners. And then the Great Revolution of August 1791 began. So I think the connection is opportunity. Not so much a transmission of these ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity, which the French were pretty ambivalent about giving their slaves anyway. In 1804, when Haitian revolutionary Jean-Jacques de Salines was crowned emperor of the new nation, 
Music from the opera Les Devins du Village by French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau was played at his coronation. When Haitian theaters reopened after the revolution, they performed classic French plays, but now with all-black casts. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. This is the sound of the musical tiger, a pipe organ shaped like a tiger devouring a British soldier. It belonged to Tipu Sultan, an anti-colonial ruler who tried to throw off the yoke of the British East India Company. He was known as the Tiger of Mysore. On December 29, 1789, Tipu Sultan attacked an ally of the British, triggering a British invasion and a bloody war, a war in which Tipu Sultan sought support from the Ottoman Empire and the new revolutionary government in France. This is the shock of the new, the year 1789. William Nelson, Karen Vallahora, and Daryl D. in conversation at the Stratford Festival about a hinge moment in history, a year and an era that still resonates with us. We've touched a few times on what was going on with the with the slave trade and, and slavery in general, but Karen, I wonder if you could give the example of just how ideas about slavery and empire changing in 1789, its aftermath, specifically the Hastings trial. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. After England lost its American colonies, it was sad for a little while, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They were making so much money out of their holdings in India. They had set up, as you probably know, the East India Company. They owned a third of India. They had taken over a third of India, and they kept expanding their territories there. But that East India Company was around for 200 years. And it it administered the British territories in India... But administer is a word that covers many functions. I was just sort of flab. It collected all the taxes from all the Indian subjects. It was, it was a mixture of a government, an administration, and a company, a corporation, like a giant Amazon. And then, as with the debates on the slave trade in the British Parliament, every single member of the British Parliament had a stake in a plantation. 
And it was exactly the same with the East India Company. Every time there was a debate, well, every single member of the parliament had stock in the East India Company that paid rich dividends. So no debate was really possible mm -hmm. about the corruption of the situation in India. I'm sorry, that's a very long-winded answer, but Please. Hastings was the governor general. Warren Hastings was the governor general of India but also the leader of this corporation. The two functions were combined. So Hastings became the symbol and the scapegoat of an entire wretched colonial enterprise. And Burke tried to bring him to trial, but it was just a desire. It was a little bit like the endless debates about the slave trade. It just went on forever and never really went anywhere. What about places like the Middle East and Asia? How were they affected by the French Revolution? One of the, the things that is most fascinating about the revolution, even if we're to kind of look at this question of, of change and possibility, the revolution was oftentimes seen as this opening up uh, of possibilities, even by people very remote from events. So certainly across Europe and in the Americas, uh, as well as uh, in, in Asia and India. Uh, there were people who sometimes professed the kind of principles of the revolution. And uh, Tipu Sultan in, in India uh, was a, a kind of famous example. He was somebody who was uh, opposed to British presence in India and was opposed to, to British rule. And he stated his appreciation for and kind of support for the, the French Revolution. But he also was kind of putting his thumb in the eye of the British. And there's a fascinating uh, question of exactly how much he supported the ideas of the revolution, how much uh, he was doing this to annoy and provoke the British, and how much the British may have been planting uh, stories about his support of the, the French to, as a kind of an excuse to go in and assert control of, of his area. Before we get to how what all this means for today, Karen, could you, you talked eloquently about what the state of art and literature was prior to the revolution. What happened after the revolution? How did it affect the way we expressed ourselves as human beings? Well, that's a really, really nice question for an English professor. Thank you. <laughs> um, the Romantic period, 1789 to about 1830, England instituted the gagging acts, pretty harsh censorship after uh, well, certainly when they went to war with France, so starting in about 1793. That flourishing culture I've been talking about had to go a little bit, it had to get quite careful. There was this overlapping poetry, essay, novel. All of it became part of a generation of ideas. It didn't really matter what the genre was, and there was a move away from pamphlets and newspapers and outright political writing, and it created this romantic culture of literature that reinvented literary genres to make them political in a way that would evade any kind of censorship. Wordsworth and Coleridge's Lyrical Ballads was published in 1798, and it's a, a keynote of the Romantic movement. It was written in a language that was meant to be shared um, and, and accessible. And so there was this, that's just one example of taking poetry, which is a high genre, Lyrical ballads, the very name. Lyric is high, ballads are a folk form. Mm. So there's this real effort to create a, a culture, to address new readers and to bring them into uh, political discussion. That's maybe one. And if you could give me just one second more, I would talk about... <laughs> 
everything shifts. The imagination started out at the beginning of the 18th century as a really distrusted. Imagination was bad. It would lead you the wrong way. Uh, stick to facts, stick to the world around us, stick to common sense. And that was really useful, but it moved toward the Romantic movement, which was all about championing what could be invented. And, and, and that resonates a little bit with what we've been talking about, just this invention and fiction and new ideas become where it's at. Yeah. Something very interesting happened in the, the revolution with architecture. Um, one of my, my favorite examples are some of the, uh, the kind of visionary drawings that were done by, there were just a few architects who were trying to imagine um, kind of built structures that could be as radically new as this world that they were trying to construct around themselves and that others were, were involved in, in realizing. These were monumental. They oftentimes eliminated many of the classical references, uh, many of the kind of ornaments that we might associate with kind of Baroque architecture. They in some ways might be familiar to us from architectural modernism of the 20th century. Also, if you see the drawings for these kind of new buildings that they were imagining, they oftentimes seem like they might be more appropriate in science fiction films from mid 20th century or late 20th century. Even today, if some of them were realized in a film, they would fit perfectly well, some kind of future vision, but they were never built. Uh, another kind of stunning oh, <laughs> symbol of this, uh, this process in the revolution, right? In which new worlds are imagined, but of course they can be incredibly difficult to realize, particularly when it's these kind of monumental construction projects similar to the, you know, the pyramids in, in Egypt uh, and various fiscal problems and, and funding them and all these kind of quotidian difficult uh, things that, that limited these grand visions being realized. So we'll turn now kind of to all what all this means for today. I wanted to maybe just ask this very general question to all three of you, maybe starting with you, Daryl, is, is what do you think we today can learn from the experience of 1789 about not just uh, the details of what happened there, but how historical change actually happens? Is there a lesson that we can draw from 1789? Yeah, it's that historical change people make history without knowing the history they're making, right? Mm -hmm. No one, as I mentioned before, no one, no one saw a revolution happening in 1788, 1789. Then it happened, right? The monarchy was suddenly finished. Its power gone, its authority melted away. And there was a chance to create something, something new. But the creation of that something new, as William so aptly put it, was a process, mm -hmm. right? And the French Revolution, though, did have some permanent, I think, permanent results. It enshrines the principle of the sovereignty of the people. Just if I can tell you a story, right? In, in France, before the revolution, power was invested in Louis XVI. Louis XVI was crowned at the Cathedral of Reims on June 11, 1775. He was anointed by miraculous holy oil that was dabbed on the head of Clovis, first Christian king of the Franks. Mm -hmm. He was then presented to his people, whose only participation in the coronation ceremony was to claim him king. Mm -hmm. Four days later, he then went out and touched several hundred people who suffered from the king's illness. The king's illness was scrofula, and the king's touch was supposed to cure them of scrofula. <sighs> <laughs> this was power in 
before 1789. This was authority. Afterwards, we no longer say that power is inherent in these kings or queens who reign by the grace of God, right? We say that sovereignty is in the hands of the people. Now, how that plays out in practice is still argued about, but the French Revolution does, in that sense, serve as a turning point. Karen? You asked how change happens. Yeah. I mean, is it necessarily something that we only recognize in hindsight, or could it... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking more about continuity. Hmm. I was boning up a little bit for this panel. <laughs> and I, I, I did quite a bit of reading about the French Revolution and England and political events. And I, I, I had to educate myself a little bit in empire and money. And I was just struck by, well, I, I've used deliberately the term the 1%. It's the refrain of our times. Mm -hmm. And... There are so many things. I mentioned Amazon deliberately as well. Amazon has become, it, it has the economy of a small nation state. It has the power of a nation state. It employs the kind of serf population that reminds you of the 18th century. They're paid, but the conditions of labor have been exposed over and over again as a serfdom and as unjust and unequal and unfair and exploitative. We are seeing that everywhere. These corporations have the power of countries, which does remind you of the East India Company. And corporations have power to influence governments mm. and hold back employment law in exactly the same way. So there's that. And then there's the invasion of Ukraine. Not to get too political, but you see the, workings, you see the workings of empire are still at play. Mm -hmm. And our optimism and our privilege sometimes, I think, prevent us from seeing the continuities with a past we've been trained to see as unjust, hierarchical, unfair, and thank God we've changed it. Whereas all around the world, the same kinds of conflicts that we have studied carefully in the 18th century, they are still playing out. So in terms of, just to press you on that, in terms of how change occurs, mm. are you essentially saying that really there is no change? Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but I think we have to, it's a little bit like the declarations of, of rights leading us to see what rights are not there yet, or what rights are going to be really hard to recognize. I think in asking about change, we first have to start with the continuities, that's really interesting. And then around that, of course, we've progressed a huge amount. And William, how would you, how would you describe the process of change, that we, things that we've learned from that year, from that era? Yeah, I think Daryl said nicely how unforeseeable events of 1789 were, and as well the continued developments of the, of the French Revolution through a number of years. One of the the really important realizations of how people live that uncertainty is that they're improvising. They're making it up as they go along. They're having to figure it out, and they're fighting about it. There's contests. The kind of the beginnings of the revolution, people are in the Estates General. They end up forming and declaring a national assembly that they represent the nation. They're asserting themselves and trying to begin a kind of significant break from the old order of things. That takes a lot of work. They didn't know what they were doing going into it, and it's a tremendous amount of continued 
lasting contest for authority. One of the things that we can see very clearly in the French case is a, a 19th century of continued revolutions, waves of revolutions, where they're fighting for the gains of the Republic. Also, there's the kind of continued contest for who speaks for the people and how do you uh, convince people that you speak for them, you speak for the nation. But I think that contest has only um, kind of intensified now. And the arguments about political authority, once this idea of divine right, once you know the idea that God has given you, given a singular monarch or a family, a lineage, the right to rule a nation, once that is eliminated, obviously there's a very large mm-hmm. opening up of a realm for contest. It doesn't end. We don't get there and then it just kind of uh, goes on autopilot. We have to fight again and again and again in different ways, in different forms, with social media and different technology now and vastly different mm-hmm. landscapes. But it is still a part of that, that kind of longer struggle, I think. Yeah. And that, I wanted to bring that back to you, Daryl. A question I wanted to ask you, because we discussed this earlier, is what long-term changes that started in 89, in 1789, that still are not, not only continuing today, but uh, are still contested today? Well, I, I think the basic notions, and I think William has been touching on this, that all of the basic ideas of the revolution, that revolutionary motto of liberty, equality, fraternity. We're, we're, still, we're still arguing about all three, the meaning and also the application of those three principles. I'm a historian, I study the past mm-hmm. and I'm very wary about commenting on the present, but I do think that any consensus we had on those three terms, we're now at a point where we're heatedly debating them again. Yeah. That's it for my questions for the moment, but I have a big stack here of uh, questions from the audience. So we'll throw those at you and you can see who wants to answer. From a historical perspective, how do we, well, this is just on the topic we were just talking about, how do we reconcile liberty, equality, and fraternity being followed by Napoleon? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe... William, do you want to tackle that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the the first things that's interesting to point out is that Napoleon presented himself as the avatar of the revolution, the living embodiment. He claimed his position and authority in the name of the revolution, yet he also implemented a new kind of eternal power, transformed the country pulled back some of the gains, uh, particularly in law, particularly for uh, women. He abolished divorce. He abolished divorce most significantly, exactly, (laughs) and reasserted the power of the the father, literally. You know, this is paternalism in its most uh, literal sense in the home as well as the, the government. One of the lessons, I think, of it is, first of all, we have to be very quite wary about the claims that politicians make about their true motives and principles, and the fact that uh, also as Napoleon continued to uh, kind of fight abroad, that the principles of the revolution were brought by gunpoint to a number of places in Europe as well, right? That That's something to be skeptical and wary of, and also to, to kind of think about the ways that this kind of contest for authority can create such opportunity for, I'm not saying Napoleon was necessarily a charlatan, but for charlatans, for opportunists, uh, for people to, to realize their own ends. The kind of chaos of revolution is a perfect opportunity for people to come in and try and gain uh, a singular authority or singular power. 
one of the great takeaways from the French Revolution, as, as also from England's Civil War, was that change has to be gradual. You can't storm into a country and give it a new regime. Uh, we've seen all the time. <laughs> not Seems. very well. Not recently, yeah. Um, and uh, I think the English criticism of the French Revolution could be summed up in, in mores have to change gradually over time. And I think that's a really nice point, that in the chaos of a revolution, uh, a power monger can step in as a god. But I think, I, I don't know, I think you still need a moment where people seize, seize an opportunity for change. Gradual can mean never, right? Mm -hmm. The Ancien Regime was ne no one expected the Ancien Regime to fall until it did, and then people stepped in and mm -hmm. seized control, can seize, seized authority, right? Um, um, I, I love Burke, right? I, I love Edmund Burke, but I, this idea that things can gradually change can also just, just mean stasis, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing, um, unless people actually seize the moment. This is something we talked about yesterday too. I mean, is it necessarily a rupture that brings, do, do we need, do you need rupture to be able to bring in large scale change? And, and by rupture, you mean violence? Well, or a deposition of a government, an in, you know, an instant change, and a revolution, essentially. I mean, is that really the, is that what history tells us? Maybe a question, is the revolution always violent? I don't know. I mean, we look at, you know, civil rights in the United States, India and freedom. Terror, the reigns of terror, and maybe I hope they're not inevitable. And I also hope Napoleons aren't aren't inevitable. No. Revolutions. <laughs> the French Revolution is often described as an unfinished project. I wonder if there's one question that was posed back then that you still think is urgent today, Daryl. I think the urgent question is liberty. What does liberty actually mean? What is what is true liberty individually and also as collectively how do we how can we be free and not impinge on other people's freedoms i think that's that is a critical question and mm -hmm. the french revolutionaries themselves failed that test many times yeah. um, when they brought the revolution to europe the, the revolutionary napoleonic armies said we're freeing you to <laughs> europeans but it really just meant french occupation and and looting right so yeah. i think that's the question that lingers with me what does liberty mean and how do we exercise it collectively karen for me it's the question of the underclass the poor and the disadvantaged I, I feel, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm all of a sudden I'm, I'm at a beauty pageant. World peace. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. The poor. Um, but, but no, uh, when you're reading the romantic response to the French Revolution, and so in England they're stirred to think of social problems anew and to reframe them, also from a global context, in the context of empire, the thing that comes up over and over and over again is poverty, the, the worry about the fate of all the poor people. 80% of England was impoverished. They were living in poverty. And so now it's sort of, you look around the world, I don't know the exact figures, but it's probably a high number still living in poverty or impoverished. And then the underclass at home, as well as the more imagined underclass abroad. Yeah. I think that's a continuing problem and how to address it and how to spread literacy and education. I think we have some of the same issues. Thank yeah. you. And William? 
I think equality. I started with that, and I, I think I would end on it as well, because you know, if there's one kind of most powerful principle, but most difficult to realize, I think it's equality. And I think continually and really thinking through what it means to realize true equality, what is necessary uh, to allow that to flourish is maybe our ultimate and biggest challenge uh, and maybe our most worthy one as well. And that's something that I think the French Revolution both uh, kind of helps us see the importance of the principle and the challenges of realizing it in real policies and restructurings of the economy, of the, the structure of, uh, of government as well. And I should say as well, I, I think I've um, sometimes been emphasizing the ways that principles haven't been realized or that there's challenges. Um, but it's also important to remember that there were lots of substantive realizations of these kind of principles in law, in the structures of government, in the legal system, that did increase the equality between people, did enable more people to experience something like uh, liberty, uh, actual liberty. Uh, so I think that would be my, my answer. Thank you. Such important questions you raise and such incredible insights. Thank you very much, Daryl and Karen and William. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being here. And thank you. Thank you. Ideas, you've been listening to The Year 1789, More Than One Revolution. It's the second part of our series, The Shock of the New, a collaboration with the Stratford Festival in Ontario. I was joined by William Nelson, Professor of Historical and Cultural Studies at the University of Toronto, Daryl D., Professor of History at Wilfrid Laurier University, and Karen Velahora. Professor of English at York University. Tune in tomorrow for part three of our series, The Year 1833, Evolution and Entrenchment. This series was produced by Philip Coulter, Pauline Holdsworth, and me, Nala Ayer. At the Stratford Festival, special thanks to Julie Miles and her team, Greg McLaughlin and Liz Thomas. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer for Ideas is Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayad.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.